0: So I met Guy, Guy like, uh, about 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, actually, to a fellow value investor, uh, and dear friend of us, Monish and I, and uh, since then, uh, of course, we all pray at the Buffett and, Buffett and Munger Church, and uh, since then, we get together twice, twice a year, basically, someplace in the world, and uh, we discuss uh, some investments, we discuss uh, our lives, we discuss world affairs, so... Uh, So, Guy, uh, most of us in the call uh, have read your book. I mean, for sure, they have received your book. I I, I don't know if they have read it, but uh, uh, a few of them have read it, probably. And and also, uh, some of us, the true fans, uh, saw the four-and-a-half-hour Warren show on Saturday. Um, So, to start start this off, um, I'll ask you some questions, and then... uh, and then I'll open the floor for our, or the screen in this case for Q&A. Um, so how is, uh, how is, uh, uh social distancing Zurich style? <laughs>
1: uh, just to get a sense. So we got 41 people on the call. How Fifty- many, how many
0: 57? Oh, okay.
1: How many, who, eight. how many you saw the Berkshire meeting? Do you know, um,
0: well, we can do a. There's like a poll here, so if yeah, if you go just to out the, of
1: curiosity, yeah, let me see. One no. In any case, just for fun. Meanwhile, I'll I'll uh, I'll continue to um, answer your question. It's just interesting to know. But uh, social distancing here in Zurich. I mean, uh, I can't even remember how long it's been. I feel like the days and weeks just all kind of like melded into each other. Uh, I think it's been about six weeks. I mean, we went into it sometime in the middle of March, I guess. Uh, And Dante, I saw you in Boston. No, I didn't. Well, I I saw the rest of the group in Boston. That was the end of February. And it was never a very tight lockdown. I understand that in Italy people weren't allowed to leave their buildings. And if they did, they had to show a a form to show why they'd left their building. We never had that kind of lockdown. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, look, personally, we we have a very nice home here. It's not been any onerousness to be all here together. Uh, And now, now they're opening up. So this week, beginning of this week, we could get haircuts again. Beginning of last week, we could go to certain garden centres, and next week they're going to start with school. So, um, uh, but so that's social. That's lockdown in in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, personally, there have been some things that I've quite liked. So I'm actually Dante grateful for the lack of travel. I've been able to cancel so many events that i really didn't need to be at in the first place so that that actually was a good thing um at the same time you know i worry about the future of the world i worry about the future of our portfolio i worry about all of those things it's very it's a very very unsettling time so i've been really happy to be with my family i've been really happy to do all the reading i've been doing uh up to about a week ago i was doing quite a lot of sport that, uh what's happening to the world economy and the sort of the upheaval is really rather shocking. Yeah, it as is. That as that was an answer. Yeah.
0: So I guess uh, you're also concerned about second waves of the pandemic and the impact on the continuing impact on the economy the markets.
1: I mean, I think that my, my experience of, um, uh, what is the word, of uh, panics is that, you know, I, I mean, first of all, going into this, and this, I guess, gets more interesting for this group, I said to myself, hey, I survived the global financial crisis of 2008-9. Uh, that's the last time I'll ever see anything like that in my lifetime. Uh, now I've come to understand that we have to expect that once-in-a-lifetime crises happen every 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was a shock to me, and that was... Um, difficult for me going into it. And I think that about um, a week before the markets tanked, I started to understand that this thing was growing exponentially. And I was sending WhatsApp messages to my family telling them to shelter in place. But I never, I didn't expect such a huge impact on the markets. I didn't make the connection between what was going on uh, with the virus and people having to shelter in their homes and the impact in the markets. And so, and then even then, I was constantly saying to myself, uh, certainly be fearful for my parents, for example, who are in their 80s. But I didn't, ha- I didn't expect such a strong impact on the economy or on uh, the markets. And I've constantly underestimated that all the way through. And I think that in our world as, you know, investors and business people, we all have an optimistic orientation. We know that it's sort of, if you're, opt- if you're optimistic, you're more likely to be successful in life. So I've had enormous optimism about this whole thing all the way through. And until about 10 days ago, I was convinced this would be a short V-shaped thing. And it's only in the last week that I've come to see that it, it is unlikely to be a shape thing uh, and there are just things that are happening that are just so unusual i mean they're talking about possibly closing gatwick airport uh the second airport of the uk they're talking you know that would be like closing LaGuardia airport in new york city because there's just no, there won't be enough demand i'm curious to see next week children young children go back to school and I think that that, I don't know how much economic activity comes back, but certainly to read the newspapers, it, it seems like we've, you know, destroyed, we, we've committed economic suicide in order to stop the virus, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but, you know, second waves, you know, who knows? We really don't know. Um, yeah. I, I all still want to believe that this thing will go away as quickly as it came. Uh, but it's—I've certainly been wrong all the way up to now, all the way up to now, and uh, and I would tell you that the the Berkshire Hathaway meeting on Saturday did not provide me with any greater comfort. I think we were all shocked to see that Warren, in the month of April, had not bought anything. In fact, he'd sold shares. He was a net seller of shares. It was kind of shocking, and it was it was also shocking to see him take a whole hour to talk to us about the history of the stock market declines of the 1930s and basically sort of saying setting our expectations that we could have 20 years of horrible returns if you like and horrible economy and so so that was i think many of the people that we know were kind of shocked by it and i came out of it thinking wow maybe i should be holding more cash Yeah.
0: so let, let's not get too too gloomy. Um, so, so let me <laughs> let, let me ask you some Berkshire-related questions. Uh, so you yeah. you, hold, you hold a fair amount of Berkshire shares in your portfolios.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So do you think about it as a long-term holding, a proxy of cash? What is your what is your case for holding Berkshire for, let's say, the the next ten years?
1: You know, uh, we have some we have various friends in common that I w- certainly won't name, but um i think that in a time like this to have a lot of berkshire hathaway it feels great even if it's down 20 or so percent or whatever amount it's down um you know this is such a big crisis who thought dante that in our lifetime we would have not just the global financial crisis of 2008-9 but this pandemic and you know there was an article somewhere that even the moat of berkshire hathaway is being breached by this i mean I think that part of the shock that Warren Buffett has is that he never believed that he would have seized candies, not selling candies. He never believed that he would have many of his businesses just not producing. He never believed that precision cast parts would have half of its sales taken to close to zero because it's all to the to the uh, uh, airline manufacturers. Um, yeah. I can't remember your question. It was a good question, but it just went out of my head.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you hold shares. And uh, so what's the case for, you know, if, if you tell somebody you have to hold this for 10 years, Warren is not going mean, to be along for that long. You know, he's 90 already.
1: Oh, Let's be yeah, that, that's, yeah. I mean, look, I, I kind of think of the portfolio that I hold. A lot of people make, some people make fun of me for it, but... Um, you know, at least half or more uh, of the portfolio is in companies that will even survive this financial crisis or this pandemic without any problems at all. In the case of Berkshire Hathaway, yeah, you've got to assume that the day you buy it, Warren Buffett is no longer around. And uh, but the, but the businesses that are in there, even if they don't own Amazon and they don't own um, Salesforce.com and various other cloud and other businesses that are thriving in this time—they uh, have plenty of great businesses that will do absolutely fine, and you can be very, we can be very confident that the people at the top allocating capital, even after Warren Buffett is gone, are doing going to do a decent job of it. And so, what's the likelihood that it turns out a return that is somewhat better than the S and P? It's a very, very good chance. And you have to put the money somewhere. I would say that I, more and more I realize that, like I, I, don't, I don't lose sleep over my Berkshire Hathaway position. And I, I, in a certain way, actually I'm coming to the, I mean, Warren Buffett said that he can't guarantee that he'll exceed the S&P over the next 10 years, if, if, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, from the annual meeting this time around. But you know, do you want? Do you would you rather be in the S and P and have maybe some more volatility or be, have more worries, or would you rather be in um, in Berkshire Hathaway and sleep better at night and have less worries or know that it's countless countercyclical, that when the right moment comes, they'll be able to deploy a lot of capital. But there was certainly, I mean, I don't know if Warren was aware of quite how downbeat he was. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah,
1: you know let's not forget that it's a new medium for him he's never done uh a tv like like a whatever you want to call it a live stream like that before but the fact of the matter what is perhaps that's the way he is he was downbeat but that doesn't mean that the company is not going to have a great um outcome over the next 20 years i think it'll have a very good outcome
0: yeah Uh, so so um you talk about this in your book about your, you know, becoming a value investor or learning to become a better value investor. So if you have to summarize the main lessons from Buffett, Munger, and of course you had lunch with them, not with them, but with Warren especially. So for the group, how would you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, before I go there, I'm certainly happy to answer that, but I'll just give a couple of both from the observation of Buffett and also from my um, observation of myself in this crisis, I mean, you know um, Warren sold the airlines. He bought them at about for about eight billion dollars. I think that they the, the prices of the shares I haven't looked at it closely approximately doubled on him. Then this crisis hit, and he sold them for a, for a discount. I'm not sure if those numbers are exactly correct. But, um, you know, one could have said, look, Warren, it's $8 billion that you invested. Yeah, so you're going to have a tough time for the next five or six years, but probably there'll be great opportunities to fund them and you'll come out of the other side of it. And, you know, a long time horizon is what Berkshire's all about. But I think that he just went to sleep one night and he just said, I just, I don't want the mental energy of owning this. And so one of the things that I learned in this crisis is that it's really important to size your positions and have cash levels that make you feel good about your life on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, so it's okay if, if somebody is owning, you know, if the crisis comes and, and you realize that you you've got too much inequities, it's okay to sell it down. You know, don't, don't beat yourself up over it. It's something that, I've learned from this. So, you know, I went into the crisis with four or 5% cash. I'm now at 10% cash. And in another couple of weeks, it'll be probably 20% cash. And I'm not saying that that's the best position from a pure return standpoint, but I'm, that's just what's going to make me very comfortable. And it might even go to 30% cash. And I'm, and actually feeling comfortable in that way and being prepared for a world in which everything goes to hell in a handbasket is a is a good feeling for me. So, um, and yeah. I didn't I didn't see that as clearly before. And I think that's part of what Warren's doing. He feels great. He doesn't like what's happening to the world, but he feels great with a right now with one hundred and forty or so billion dollars in his pocket, ready to go. I mean, the lessons from. The lessons from the launch um that you know i i just want to go back to that because it, it's something that i've been learning is this idea of just position sizing you just you, it's really really important to get you the position sizing right and that's you know that is in relation to how much cash you have how wealthy you are what other investments you have and you know you can you can make mistakes on the downside but you can also make mistakes on by having positions too big basically and when you see that they're not the right size then change them you know the stock doesn't know that you own it it's okay to do it so um that's a huge lesson for me um you know lessons lessons from from the lunch uh I don't know, nothing, you know, you have to forgive me, Dante, it's 10 o'clock at night. I know, I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know know what we could do, do, Dante, is that, uh, you know, for the seminar that I did before the Berkshire meeting, I shared some personal photos from the launch. I could bring them up and I could show them to the group, if you like. I don't know if you want to do that.
2: Yeah,
0: while we talk, Um, yeah. So I have another question here. Uh, So we all know that... uh, Failure is is a better teacher than success.
1: Um, Yeah, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can you teach some of the lessons from bad investing experiences? Well, you had about a big ordeal with uh, this public company, Horset, along with Monish, right? And uh, you took it all
1: the way down. Um, Yeah, I mean, that is a great example of um, bad position sizing, I mean, there was not much. So I'm ready for you with the photographs. If you want me to share some of them, I'm happy to do it, just so yeah. you know. You um, can, yeah, you can share them uh, while you speak, yeah. Uh now then, then I'll want to talk about it. So I'll yeah, answer this question then I know, share. I know, I know. Yeah. Um so uh, uh lessons from horsehead. I mean there are actually I yeah, there are two big lessons. I had this sort of so, like so, ideological if, if you can tell the group uh,
0: the, the um, background
1: yeah you know um, I, I pay close attention to what smart people in my life do or I try to and uh, this Indian friend Monish had um, quite a, a very large position in this company Horsehead holding I believe that he was either 5 or 10 percent of the company and the more I, I studied the company the more i felt like i could see that they were going to transform the economics of a particular part of the steel business and um there were many good things that were happening it's just that they were building this plant and the plant got delayed and delayed and delayed and at a point where um there was a sudden decline in the price of zinc which is their uh the primary product that they sell Uh, it turned out that the plant that they were building was never gonna be ready and that they'd spent more money than they had. And um, suddenly within a period of three or four months, they were going to do a bankruptcy filing. And so they ended up filing for bankruptcy for reasons that I'm still not fully understand because there was a lot of asset value to back the company. They just had a short-term cash flow issue but I was, had the experience of seeing a position that was 15% of my portfolio uh, go to zero, which is by far and away the most difficult time, uh, actually as difficult perhaps as the financial crisis. And you know, if in retrospect, two huge lessons. One was that it's quite possible if I'd have been closer to the management, then um, I, I would have maybe seen this coming. And I think it really taught me to disabuse myself of the idea that one shouldn't speak to management. That's uh, just a really bad idea. Uh, It is important to speak to management. It's just important to get the timing right and to get the content of those conversations right. And the other, I guess the other huge, huge lesson for me uh, is is position sizing. I mean, I had, uh, even before the financial crisis, I had some significant losses in my portfolio it didn't matter, I'd sized the positions right. And I have, I have an ownership position in a credit rating agency in India that is down probably 50% on me. Uh, but that's fine, because I, I made it a small position and I plan to own it for a very long time and I hope the company will get a lot better. But because it's the right size, it's absolutely fine. So, but those two lessons have taken me a long time to learn. I've been doing this 20 years and yeah. I still don't understand how to size positions you know yeah
0: yeah yeah but uh, you also took this all the way to bankruptcy court <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs>
1: was it a good well, use so, the so, time? So, Yeah. so so that the part of the so so the part of that story is that you know different investors have different um personalities and so when this thing went to zero and I didn't believe it should have gone to zero at all I feel like the management they gave up at some point trying to save the company for the shareholders and started cooperating very actively with the creditors without letting the shareholders know that they were doing that. I felt like this was outrageous. And, um, you know, some people have the personality that they say, well, I lost that bet. I'm going to move on. Yeah. And I felt like I couldn't do that. And so I, um, I fought the bankruptcy without the real resources, Because the the real, uh, if at that point, the company owed $200 million. And if I would have had $200 million, I could have paid off the creditors and taken control of the company. But I didn't have that $200 million. But I still believe the company was worth more than what the creditors were giving it credit for. And so I, I fought that at the bankruptcy court. So for what it's worth, bankruptcy court takes a company that is filed for protection from its creditors and has the power to award the company, for example, to the creditors in, um, payment of its debts. Yeah, yeah, And I came along to the judge basically and said, you can't do that. The company has value for the creditor, for the equity holders. And actually in the final, I mean, we still lost the company, but actually the valuation that the judge came to did have some value for the equity holders, interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I would say is that I, I learned an enormous amount through that, and Dante, I, my personality is is that I had to do that. I could not have done it any other way, and mm-hmm. I don't regret doing that at all. And um, you know, and I'm 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 obviously I would have preferred an outcome where we would have won, uh, in the final trial, uh, but I still would have done it even if I knew up front that we wouldn't win. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I felt, and and you know why? Because I felt like my reputation was on the line. Many people had followed me in there, and I had to fight. I had to do everything I could. I could live with myself if I knew I had done everything I possibly could to try and save the equity interest, and that's what I did. I can look at anybody in the eye and say that I did that, yeah. and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: you can tell I, I know most of the answers, but uh, <laughs> <where are> you? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you want to show us the pictures now?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. So, you need to give me the screen share.
0: Uh, you can do it yourself, I think.
1: Screen share. Share screen. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, hold on a second. Share screen. Here we go. Uh, desktop one. Mm. Oh, I need to open my system preferences. Is it doing anything? No.
0: (laughs) Yeah, go through the motions of the system preferences. It takes a second.
1: Yes, so system preferences, and then do you know where it is? Uh, Do you know which part of system preferences? I'm on an apple here. Uh,
0: Privacy, it it should come up.
1: Uh, Let's see. Privacy grant access. Okay, let's see. Oh, there we go. Okay.
0: It'll ask you to restart Zoom, but.
1: Later. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so try again. Uh...
0: Yeah, we can see them now.
1: It wants to record. You can see it. Okay. Yeah. So there we go. I mean, this is this. I don't know how many. Have you seen these, Dante? You've probably seen them. But, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. So, so it's just funny because uh, I don't think these are in the public domain. But uh, so that's the room at um, Smith and Walensky's, and you can see Warren Buffett over there and Monish's daughters left and right. And you can see that I'm having a whale of a time, and that's my yeah. wife. And this is the back of Monish's wife, uh, Harina, and Monish is out of the picture, but. For what it's worth, I had a cold at the time. I was a little sick because I was so nervous about meeting him and I so wanted him to like us. And you can see the Diet Cokes everywhere. In retrospect, I wish I'd ordered a really expensive wine. (laughs) Well, not an expensive wine, but a nice wine in any case. Uh, And there we have... um, Monish's daughters look so young, they're now fully grown. It's amazing. And I don't remember what's going on there, but... uh, and now they have on the walls there, I'm sure you've been there, Dante. There's some plaques. Yeah, really. uh, with, um, so what else did I? Well, that, that was a little room. And you can see that's with and in New York. And uh, people, could, people in the tables outside knew that we were having that lunch. They were kind of enjoying watching us from a distance. But, uh, and the time went by so fast. Yeah. It was kind of frustrating how fast it went by. What else did I put up here? So then about the, the following year, we got invited to Warren's office and he gave us a tour. And so we got these photographs. So this is in his office. There's a photograph of his dad. Interestingly enough, his wife had died, but no photograph of his wife. And there was nothing in the too hard pile. So I, could, I yeah. sort of said, hey, Warren, you've got to put something in the too hard pile. But um, uh, not a very large office and apparently these blinds are always down. He just never looks out of the, looks out. He has no interest. And uh, pretty straightforward office. I mean, not much else to look at. Um, and this is kind of like in the lobby of his office. So I can't remember exactly how it goes there. I think Debbie's office is, I, can you see my mouse? Yeah. I think Debbie's, Debbie's office is somewhere here, but this is kind of like a reception area. It was interesting to see this. nobody gets to see the wizard, not nobody, not know how. So he kind of gets a lot of visitors or people try and visit him, and uh, he tries to sort of like get them away from him. Uh, and there's, there's Monish on that visit, and we had a, this sign made. So this is apparently is one of the big football teams. They have Play Like a Champ today in their changing rooms, and he had this sign made. So, of course, we went and got the same sign made. And uh, that's us at the Berkshire meeting. If I would have known, actually, Dante, I should have pulled up some photos with you. That's there's me. us with Becky yeah. Quick. Yeah. She was very nice to us at the first meeting after we had the lunch, but but then she kind of, well, she had other bigger fish to fry, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's that's Monish and Laurie at the, at the Berkshire. That's my wife, and that's the four of us. Um, that's probably my favorite photograph, actually. Yeah. Uh, and there's Debbie Basanic. So, uh, yeah, that's um, uh, Debbie's Secret Source. Uh, um, oh, there's so that, that's, so, I mean, before the launch with uh, Buffett, I really didn't know Monish very well. This yeah. was on a trip to India where we visited one of the Dakshana dorms. Yeah. And uh, this is somebody else that I got to know through Debbie Bosanic. Her name is Jillian Segal. She wrote a book called Getting There. And um, so I kind of, and she's actually much, she's really friendly with both Warren and Charlie and Bill Gates. It's kind of crazy. And, um, uh, Laura Rittenhouse is another person I got to know. This was Phil town. Yeah. Uh, uh, that questioner. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that was sorry for the noise, but, uh, who's that? That is, uh, that was Rose Del Rios, who's the former treasurer of the United States, oh. and this is at the Buffett branch. So this is at this sort of like um, after the Berkshire meeting, Yeah. Uh, he invites some people. So I don't know. Why did I show this? Uh-huh. Um, there's a, an author. Forgive me for the... Shut uh, up, yeah. So Tim so Anyway, Cook is- there you go. Just a few photographs. You're talking Tim the Cook there, of-
0: yeah so let's uh switch gears um let's talk a, a bit about the economy so you, of course you have a degree in economics and uh, we're all uh, so how do you judge the sustainability um, of the you know the qe infinity um so i don't know if you, you want to reflect on that and walking us through the
1: yeah.
0: economic implications that you see
1: so first of all let's start with uh Uh, QE because that's perhaps the easiest thing. And here's the analogy that I have uh, that is not a perfect analogy, but I want to share it with you because I think it kind of helps me to think about it. So, you know, we have the economy and we have the circular flow of money or liquidity through the economy. So we could, if we imagine for a second that the economy is a house And the circular, there's the liquidity, the money that makes everything work is like water flowing in pipes through the house. And we just imagine for a second that all the taps are on. And we have uh, a system for circulating the water back to the top of the house. And then it flows through all sorts of different pipes into sinks in the bathroom, into the shower, into... And what we need for a happy house in this special world is that the water's flowing nicely and in some sinks it's half up and in other sinks it's one quarter and that's kind of like liquidity flowing through the system if you like. And then there's there's uh, something that takes the water from the top and recycles it back from the bottom and recycles it back to the top. Now, you know something that we've never really seen before. Half the taps in the house are switched off. Uh, that's effectively what the lockdown does. It stops activity left, right and center. And suddenly, baths are emptying out, basins are emptying out. uh, And so the Federal Reserve is running around with buckets of water trying to fill the different tubs. And now somebody comes and says, oh, the Federal Reserve shouldn't be doing that. I think my point is that the Federal Reserve is pushing liquidity into places where liquidity is dried up. For various reasons, people can't buy high yield bonds, and then the Federal Reserve Unlike the the, uh, the 1929 crash where they said, oh, well, that's the private market. We are just going to sit here and watch. The Federal Reserve is coming and doing absolutely the right thing. And that's what Warren said when he said that um, Powell absolutely is as is, is, is important as Ben Barnanke is. He, he took They're very tough decisions to make, but they were the right things to do. And then so you have these currency hawks, and there are people in Germany who are these currency hawks who say, oh, my God this is unacceptable, the federal balance sheet has blown up, we're going to have inflation, we don't have sound money anymore. So we don't know what the outcome is. But we do know that if the Federal Reserve hadn't opened the floodgates, run around with buckets of water through the house and filled up things that were drying up, we would have caused a terrible economic crisis. And so that was absolutely the right thing to do. And we don't know what the consequences are, but we absolutely know that if the Fed had not done that, it would be disastrous. And I actually think that it's very likely that the Federal Reserve will figure out and other central banks will figure out how to withdraw the liquidity once the economy restarts. So I I actually, you know, the, the fact that the Federal Reserve balance sheet has expanded by so much is a very positive sign actually. It shows that we have policymakers who have learned from previous financial crises, who understand how to keep the economic machine going and are doing the right thing. So there, I don't have an issue at all. And then, uh, you know, so if you go to the real economy, uh, I mean, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking to see 25 million unemployed you know, that is just a scary, scary number. And who knows what the consequences of it are. And if you look at, you know, I mean, my little office, Dante, and, you know, the few mailings that we do, and of course, a lot of that got slowed down or stopped. And now, you know, we want to continue with the mailings. But, you know, the post office doesn't want to accept post that is going to countries outside of Europe. We don't have... You know, the things that we want to mail out, we don't have. So our little office supply chains are disrupted. And if our supply chains are disrupted, I can't even start to think what supply chains look like in the broader economy. So the disruption there is is enormous. And I was, well, I was already... Uh, three or four weeks ago sort of saying, look, we need to, this is going to, the damage from the economic shutdown is going to be greater than the damage from the loss of life uh, because of the virus. And so I think that, I mean, when I look at it, I just say there is a very high likelihood that we have an enormous recession, a huge, huge recession. But having said that, I think that there is a part of the story that the newspapers and the financial press want to scare us uh more well it's not they want to scare us more is that they want to sell newspapers and so the headlines scream and we're in a fearful state and so it's not going to be as bad as those headlines say the reason why is that again government spending is going to stabilize it's not going to it's not going to replace the spending that is lost and but but government that there's it's it's in times of recession, government stabilized the economy. And Warren Buffett said that the, sort of the net worth of the United States is around, he he put it, I think, at $100 trillion. And, um, you know, for the country to spend in this crisis uh, $5 trillion uh, to help it get through is something that the country can afford to do. So, but having said that, it, I, it would have been ideal for us to go through this crisis somehow without shutting our global economies down. And I think that it's still not clear, Dante, whether, you know, it may be that, that we don't get a second wave or the second wave is very attenuated and the economy actually roars back pretty quickly. We can't rule that out. It's very possible that that, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out.
0: Yeah, no, no. Uh... It's also an election year. So how do you assess the impact of uh, Trump winning or losing?
1: So there are a lot of people. So, you know, amazingly enough, uh, it's not clear that he's, it's not clear to me that he's gonna lose uh, because, you know, (laughs) I'm not the average American elector and there are some people that I respect very highly who think that he's a great president or the, the what they would say is that, the, you know, the argument is he's a, he's a terrible person, but he's actually, when you look at many of his actions, he's not such a terrible president. I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm reminded of in watching the Berkshire meeting that I take away from it is that what we have to do as investors and business people is not... You know, we, we don't have to be for Trump or against Trump, like him or dislike him. We just have to uh, observe. And the fact of the matter is, none of us knows who's going to be reelected. He may be reelected, he may not be reelected. Um, you know, he may be pumping up the stock market right now in order to improve his chances of reelection. He may have given the directive out to every single person uh, in, in, who has any influence to say these markets have to be, stay strong. At least until I get elected and re-elected, and then we, could, then you can let them go. Uh, that is just one great yeah. big unknown, a huge unknown, and that that is that is what makes me, uh, you know, I I will certainly feel very happy to have around twenty percent of cash in my portfolio. So yeah, and the the real answer to that is investors. So so it's not so much, you know, do I know what's going to happen? Of course I don't. But given the uncertainty, what's the level of cash that I want to hold to be ready for all, yeah. whatever comes? Yeah,
0: I some, some, uh, have some uh, somewhat related question to this that I got from, from somebody on the call. Uh, which main assumptions uh, for a value investor have you changed with COVID? What are you adjusting on your models?
1: Yeah. Uh, um... So, so, very much on the portfolio management side, uh, we talked about that. How, um, yeah, you know, the, the the extreme importance of getting position sizing right, because if the position is the right size, it's not going to affect me too much uh, if there's there's sudden extreme drawdowns. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, it's a great question. I, I have to say that I'm still shocked. Uh, at the idea that the airline industry is going to take it three, at least three years or more to come back i I, I, I still can 't quite believe that because yeah i just i just can 't quite believe it, but I think that the other so that 's one you know i that 's an adjustment that i 'm still making the other adjustment that I think has taken me so long i mean i 've been you know dante if I just bought shares. Of the products of the cloud computing products that I use. Uh, so, you know, Dropbox, I use a lot, uh, yes. Salesforce, we use in our business. Um, you know, the, the returns in those companies would have been so great. So, I've been aware of the cloud and of cloud computing as a product that I use, but I haven't invested in them. And what we see now is that they are far more central to our operating system our economic operating system than so many other companies that maybe were central to our economic operating system 20 or 30 years ago so uh, it's not maybe an update to my models but you know the economic realities of which businesses are driving the world forward has changed and i think it's taken me because i've learned so much from warren buffett and but, but I've kind of discarded those ideas as investable ideas and that is a great shame. So, you know, I've been spending time in the last few weeks uh, researching cloud computing companies like Salesforce uh, in addition to Amazon, Google and some other ones that probably people I hadn't heard of until I started researching them. Uh, you know, yeah, I, 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 I regret not owning them. I, I, I wonder if they're cheap enough now, but I'm certainly going to be paying a lot more and closer attention to them.
0: Yeah. I, I think, I mean, mo- I mean, most of what you're saying is uh, like consensus, I think. Uh, not reflected on the market, but, uh, yeah. but if, because if, you ask, if I ask you uh, what sectors will be the winners after this crisis, uh, which one will come out uh, stronger? Um, yeah, I mean, everybody knows that the uh, airlines for, for a few years are going to be down pretty bad, and uh, the restaurants and all, you know, hospitality. But is there something that somebody else is not looking at that maybe we as value Investors <laughs> we like to look where nobody else is looking? Yeah. yeah. have you think about that? When you
1: figure that, when you figure that out, tell me, Dante. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um, I mean, it was, look, again, it was really shocking to see that Warren had not bought anything and in a certain way that, that has led a lot of people to believe that, you know, the other shoe is not yet dropped.
0: But not, not, not uh, even that, Ted or that. Todd, and, and they have this uh, discretionary fund. I mean, like, I guess they manage like a 10 billion or so, and they haven't done yeah. nothing either. So that's also remarkable.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so no, I, I don't, I don't have, I I don't have anything, anything to <laughs> hugely insightful to share. Uh, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I would say this, and this is not, so having been an investor, a professional investor through the financial crisis of 2008, nine, um, There are so, so, so my, look, my experience of that crisis sort of colors this one. And at the end of the day, that crisis lasted about six months and then it was in a certain way over and the, the world can change so quickly and one's view of the world can change so quickly. And we become overly, we don't even realize that we're becoming overly focused on some things that, that once the crisis is over, will be done. And Um, You know, these people who write newspaper articles saying the world has changed forever or people will never visit a restaurant for another three years and we're going to have to have rules on social distancing. It's possible that we actually solve, either we get a vaccine or we solve those problems very quickly. You know, maybe it may be that they managed to prove that actually the only kinds of events where the viruses spread are certain kinds of social events where people get very close to each other, uh, but if you 're walking through an airport terminal, if you 're sitting on an airplane there are many and, and i 'm no doubt that Boeing and Airbus are figuring out right now how to disease proof their airplanes and it may be that you know flying comes back maybe not right away but quite quickly i mean i'm still astounded that you know think of nine eleven the day of nine eleven I remember saying to myself, who will ever fly in a plane ever again? There was this feeling the world has changed forever. The world had not changed at all. And part of what the lockdown has done is that it has stopped innovation. And if we were to, what I believe that the governments should do is they should just say, look, uh, we'll protect the hospital beds. As long as are hospital beds available, it's your decision whether you go out or not. And, uh, you know, you're taking a risk, but it's up to you. And once businesses get the chance to innovate and experiment and figure stuff out, they're going to figure stuff out. We're going to find a way to to continue with our way of life without, um, with the virus. And that may bring things back to normal far quicker. So, so it's hard to think through all of that. And I think that that's part of what Warren was saying at the meeting. He was just saying, look, I don't know yet. I don't understand. It's not clear to me. And if it's not clear, yeah. I don't have to do anything, basically. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I got another, another easy question for you here uh, from one of the attendants. Uh, it, this is about China, and uh, they're trying to, of course, get rid of the dollar of, uh, as a reserve currency for the world. Um, I don't know. To you, I guess you don't, but uh, how do you assess that? in terms of China and the, I mean the geopolitics of China and the US, you know, locking horns and you know, there are so many things that are happening there.
1: So, you know, we, we both revere Charlie Munger and yeah. one of his statements is, is that the United States and China have to learn to get along. There's no other option. And while that is true, I have to say that, well, um, I have I I am NOT a Trump supporter I promise you but I happen to believe that China covered up the origins of the virus I think that I have plenty of evidence that shows that I've read there's plenty of evidence that shows at minimum they covered it up and at worst uh, um, it originated in the lab we can't prove it and so you know we cannot have a world in which any country can engage in experiments with viruses that could then come and impact us. So I think the world has a big issue with some of the work that was going on in China around viruses. Um, I think that if I understand from reports that I've read, there were real issues in getting personal protection equipment, PPE from factories in China and I've read stories that say that China was not playing fair in a certain way they were they were kind of saying we'll only supply this these things to you if you behave in a certain way I think that 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 has revealed to people how much we were relying on China and so that is very very likely to change I don't think that the dollar is going to lose its reserve status anytime soon because you have to be in order to have reserve status for your currency, you have to treat people fairly, and you have to have a system that people trust and i don 't think that people trust China in the same way, so i don 't think there 's any danger of China becoming the global hegemon where you know the United Nations instead of things being decided at United nations they're decided somewhere in China. Uh, but it, it's certainly part of the story of this crisis. Is is in a certain way seeing China flex its muscles? Yeah. And um, it, yeah. I mean, that's just part of the story, isn't
0: it? Yeah, it is. So, another mac- macro question. <clears throat> this is about gold. Uh, well, we are about investors, so I guess how that's would okay. you explain what's our take on the gold as a safe haven? <laughs>
1: um you know uh it's shiny and uh, it's very nice to look at i've i've never owned gold and so um for the person who's asking the question the, the, this is straight from warren buffett's mouth i'm not I'm, I'm almost repeating word for word is that the thing that makes us rich so if i if i look at If we look at any list of rich people in the world uh i don't think there's anybody who's on that list because they owned gold uh because they bought and sold gold uh it's not what makes it's not what creates wealth and as warren says the gold just sits there and you can look at it but it's not producing stuff the people who are at the top of the forbes lists or the rich people's lists by and large, people were in great businesses for long periods of time. So in the United States, I think of people like the uh, Walton family who owned Walmart, or I think of the Kroc family who owned uh, McDonald's, or you think of the Buffett family who owned, who owned Berkshire Hathaway. And so you, you want to have your, your, the vast majority of your savings in, I think, productive businesses, businesses that can grow long-term, the way Walmart and McDonald's and others have and did. Um, and then, you know, the question is, how do you hold cash? Uh, what ways do you do it? I mean, Warren Buffett, he, he was very clear. He said, you know, they won't own commercial paper, even. They buy treasury notes, T-bills, obligations of the U.S. government. Some people say, oh, I don't trust the U.S. government. I want I gold. Uh, but the price of gold fluctuates, and you have to pay tax on the capital gains if you if, if if you have them. But look, Dante, it is gold is a way of holding cash, you know. And if you want to hold gold, I mean, it's a lot of work basically because you're not expecting a return on it. So, and if yeah. you're looking for protection or for inflation, I think there are other better ways to get protection from inflation. Yeah. Uh,
0: So we are getting closer to 4 p.m. I have a few more questions here. I don't know. Maybe we can keep going. Maybe some people, if they have something else to do, they can disconnect. Um, um, So maybe we can do some more, uh, um, I mean, some quicker uh, or shorter answers. Um, So when when you are analyzing and making an investment decision, do you rely on the opinion of analysts? or do you rely on your own uh, work and opinion?
1: Yeah. That's so nice. I think that the way I used to be Dante is that I was very suspicious of um, anyone who wasn't me, and who wasn't somebody that I respected. And the, the analogy that I've used in terms of either using research or talking to management is, you know, the using a chainsaw. The chainsaw is a very dangerous instrument. You easily cut off your arm or a leg with a chainsaw without thinking too much. And so, the, you know, my reaction in the past was, oh, therefore, uh, I should never touch a chainsaw. But if I'm in the forest and I need to cut down a tree, to take out my penknife, to not use the chainsaw is ridiculous. And it's a dangerous tool, but you should use it. So I think that all of these things, talking to management, talking to analysts, reading analyst reports are um, in a certain way, dangerous tools because they have probably an ax to grind. They're trying to convince us to do something, yeah. but like the chainsaw, that doesn't mean we don't look at it. We, we read the instructions, we understand the dangers and then we use it. Of course we use it. We need all the help that we can get. I think the key is not to, not to speak to management first, and take what they say is gospel truth, yeah. not to listen to the management, to the analyst first, but to first of all learn as much as one can about the company yeah. and then speak to the analyst, then speak to the management. So I think that, you know, all of these things, the answer is you have to acquire as much information as you can and you have to be intelligent about it. And yeah. you know, just going to Horseide, Dante, you know, I regret never visiting the company in um, their plant, because I think that if I had visited their plant, I would have talked to some of the people. I would have maybe met somebody in the cafe. I would have exchanged business cards. I would have asked questions. I may have picked something up. Yeah. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, you want to take information. Actually something else that I've learned, I believe is that I think that I've been far too mistrustful of my own instincts and, you know, that's just, I've sort of like, if Warren Buffett's not thinking the thought, it can't be right. And if I'm thinking it then, and Warren Buffett isn't thinking it, then I must be wrong type of deal. And you know, I think that I would be a better investor if I was able to give proper attention to those instincts. And that doesn't mean that they should rule me, but they shouldn't be completely ignored either. And that's the same with things like talking to management or analysts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, how do you source, source for investment ideas? Where do the ideas come from? How does the process, process work?
1: So, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, the way he answers a question like that is he says, well, I just start at the A's. Yeah. And so, his, just for everybody's benefit, that is a way of not answering the question. Sure. But I think that um, the, The the, the, the thing is, we have to use all of our intelligence and all of our abilities and all of the particular things that we have in our lives to um, move forward with that project of coming across the very best possible investment ideas. And I'm reminded in either the first or the second Gulf War, this famous general, Norman Schwarzkopf. Was being asked by a journalist, you know, which way are you going into Iraq? And and Norman Schwarzkopf answered the journalist by saying, "Let me tell you, we're going underneath, we're going around, we're going over every way you can think of us going into Iraq. We're going in that way." And I think that you know, when it comes to investing, you know, any any potential source of an idea is potentially a good source and somebody who is intent on becoming better should not rule out any of them, whether that's value line, talking to your friends, attending the Berkshire meeting, it's all part of that search. And, um, so what, you know, what do I do is, is perhaps more interesting. Uh, I try to read the letters of other managers uh, and try and understand and see what's going on. I just, I just received a letter, the letter of a guy called Scott Miller from Greenhaven yeah. Asset Management. Yeah, pretty good. And he described, yeah, yeah, he's a lovely guy. And he describes three small companies. And I'm going to go and read up on them and try and understand. You yeah. know, in another, I, I, I discovered that Mike Burry is, uh, one of my investors used to work at a company called GameStop. And Mike Burry, the famous guy from the movie The Big Short, yeah. is uh, a reg- he's, he's a 5% shareholder of GameStop. So there's something going on at GameStop that I want to go and look at and pay attention to. So at the same time, when I was taking a shower this morning, I was thinking to myself, well, when I have 20% cash, that will be $40 million in my fund. Because by the way, Dante, I'm no longer at quarter of a billion. I'm at <laughs> $200 million, just to be clear Uh, A little more, but, uh, you know, that's life in a big city. That's all right. Uh, And uh, I was asking myself, what company could I find which have maybe $100 billion worth of debt that is not because they're stressed as trading at 50% uh, of the value of the the face value of the debt where I could maybe acquire control of the company 50% of the face value. So I had that thought in the shower and I said to myself, you know, why don't I pull together a screen on Bloomberg in this case to see what comes up. So I'm going to do a search for companies yeah. with approximately $100 million worth of debt and, and just see what comes up. And so I'm looking at that. But something else that I'm doing is when I do those screens, I'll get five candidates that I'll look at. Most likely, every candidate is going to be a piece of shit. Excuse yeah. my language. Uh, but I'll write to the managers of those companies anyway. I'll send them a copy of my book and a copy of the annual report. So you can see that I am I am doing I am finding is it's the same as Norman Schwarzkopf. Keep yeah. working as a line of attack uh, until you see a better way to do it. You know, and I'm trying to improve. Yeah. So
0: so how how do you uh, handle uh, I mean or avoid information overload? I mean, there's there's a lot of publications and books and blogs and, you know, so there's a lot of information. How do you manage
1: that?
2: Your intake so, of so
1: in, in, in all honesty, you know, first of all, the, the the easy and fun answer to give you is not very well, but I'm seeking to improve. And I think that we have to, again, there's no substitute for approaching it, the task, with as much intelligence as one can. So. You know, I, I, I've started experimenting with Twitter as a research tool because you can connect to all sorts of people via Twitter. And I see some economist, some Helsinki economist who's writing some things, so I go and read what he has to write and it grabbed my attention until I finally figured out I can classify him as a kind of a, an economic commentator like the boom, doom and gloom report, the guy in Hong Kong. So, you know, you, one needs to classify one's sources and ways of doing research until you find uh what is most useful and what is not and so um uh, so you know um if there's an industry that i'm interested in funnily enough i was i got a book on southwest airlines which finally was on and and i was like i was like oh great i'll finally learn more about southwest airlines even though it's not really investable for me right now certainly It was a really bad book. I mean, I I was not impressed with it at all. I actually threw it away. But books are a great thing to read. I think, you know, look, Dante, I'm not very action-oriented. So in information overload, there's only a certain amount of time that you can research and read in a day. And uh, at some point, we have to make decisions. I mean, and. Yeah, I I don't know if there's, what I would say in terms of structuring my days Dante is that I I try to do sport first thing in the morning because if I don't do it in the morning, I'll never do it. And then I try to get as much reading as I possibly can in because once the phone calls start and responding to emails, that's a nonstop thing. And so today was a pretty good day. I, I read three or four hours. I had a big pile of papers on my desk I was reading on some cloud computing companies. Uh, I had some, you know, whenever I see something interesting, I print it out to read. I read Metro Bank's annual report, um, uh, the UK bank. Um, I read Salesforce annual report today. But, um, you know, in a certain way, it's not so much information overload. It's just trying to learn enough that at some point I'll be able to make a good decision, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's... I th- yeah, uh, I think uh, Eric wants to ask a question. You can that's turn great, your mic sure. on.
2: Great, thank you, Guy. Do you hear me?
1: Loud and clear.
2: Okay. Um, looking after a country as ours, Peru, yeah. where we have a demographic bonus, something like the U.S. in the 50s with uh, baby boomers. Yeah. So we have a steady growth in the population and many kids growing and coming into the market, earning their their salaries and spending for the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. So in that sense, uh, I, I want to take a, an approach to real estate as a, as a asset class, which is the biggest one in the world, and how it um, take advantage of this situation in behalf of this hedge, again, in inflation, which real estate has, as well as giving a cash flow for the next years, and the appreciation that bring an environment of baby boomers. So my question is one, the asset state in this environment, and number two is instead of selling and going into cash, taking advantage of low interest rates. I've been involved in a few transactions when I get financing with a, with a 30 year a period for a, a balloon payment and only only interest for that period. So if I get this low interest and a balloon to 20 or 30 years, why not taking advantage of that instead of Selling and going cash.
1: Yeah. So, so here's, you know, first of all, realize I'm not a real estate investor. I don't, I don't have any particular insights, but here's what I, I would share with you that I feel I do know about real estate. So, um, real estate is, is extraordinarily forgiving of bad management. So, you know, you have some companies, uh, where if you don't manage the company, right, you don't have any value left. And it's really nice to know that when you buy an apartment building or if you buy an office building, you can't be guaranteed it. But, but, you know, management is not that important an issue so long as the real estate is high quality and is in a good place. Uh, Real estate is also something that I think is really wonderful about real estate is it's so extraordinarily local. So, you know, you really need to – there's nuances to – you know, what part of the building it is, what neighborhood, all of those things, which mean that um, a local investor can really do well with it and can apply insights that are not too hard. You don't have to be some big financial whiz kid to be able to do that. So those are a couple of things that I think make real estate a fantastic asset class, especially for individual investors. Um, on On the negative side, real estate is very, very capital intensive. So you know, you, you you build a house, you buy a house or an apartment. You can put one family in it. Or you can put one tenant in it. You can't you can't put multiple tenants into it. You can't increase the capacity. You have to buy a new apartment or you have to buy a new office in order to do extra rent. And so, the capital intensivity is not is is not positive, um, and that's why a lot of people want to fund the real estate purchases with credit, and especially potentially at very, very low interest rates. If they're just giving money away, uh, why not? Just one other thing that I've understood about real estate is that, that the real estate that you're going to buy for investment is probably very different to the real estate that you're going to buy to live in. So um, my best evaluation is that the, the running costs of a multifamily unit or a multi-office unit are far lower than than owning different pieces of property and so uh you want to be pay careful attention to the operating characteristics of the properties that one buys lastly one wants to pay attention to the replacement cost what would it cost to replace this piece of real estate um, but with you know so that is an extraordinary asset class and i actually think that um You know, I I would love to to one day control or own an operating business. And if I don't succeed in doing it in some uh, manufacturing or other kind of cloud, I don't know what, maybe I'd end up doing it in real estate. I think it's a very valid asset class. Uh, I just tell you that I recently bought a house in London and they were just giving money away. They were offering money at 2%. And I ended up buying it for all cash. And the the interest rate would have been very low. But I was really, really happy to buy it for cash. At the end of the day, there's something really nice about knowing that you own something without having to talk to a bank, without anybody having any rights over you with that property is a really wonderful thing. And so I've become, I'm still extraordinarily wary of debt on the property. And my experience with Horsehead is that there are some banks that are very nice lenders, and there are some banks that will try and use tricks to get you. And, you know, who knows? But there's something about owning it outright. So uh, I I got to where I am today without having ever ever having a mortgage. So did my father get to where he is without ever having a mortgage. And I kind of like the idea of never having to owe anybody anything, so... I'd be very wary about even a balloon loan with 30 years. Um,
0: and we have a, a meeting in your London house, ladies' work.
1: Oh, that would be nice once we finish it. You Where know, is we it? We haven't been able to go. There. Where's uh, it it's in yeah. It's in Richmond, southwest of London. I see.
0: Okay, yeah. um, I have one, one question here from Diego. What is the best way to get, to go from success to significance? <laughs> uh,
1: from success to significance. Uh, well, you know, that assumes that I've experienced both. I may not have, um, have a wife that loves you. <laughs> um, you know, all the best questions are so hard to answer because, oh, yeah. because they're actually philosophical. So how do you go from success to significance? I think that possibly the answer to that question, or a good answer to that question, is that you know we need we need to find the ways to make that make the things that make us significant that make us feel significant without thinking about success. Those should maybe be do the same things. I think there's somewhere in there Dante. There's a a comment about the inner scorecard that somebody could intelligently make. But maybe here's this is helpful for you. I think that you know I had my children in my late thirties. I would have found it very hard, I think, to turn forty without having had children without being married. Uh, you know, being a single guy started to get old on me in my early thirties. It took me a while to find so, somebody the right person for me to get married to. but uh, I think that my children give me an enormous amount of significance. I think that i I found it much easier to turn fifty having written a book that gave me an enormous amount of significance. Uh, and um, so I, you know, I think that the, the one last thing that I would say is that, so especially, so I'm doing this course online called uh, The Science of Wellbeing. It's a course on Coursera, anybody can do it. And she gives some really important things for what, you know, they study now what makes people happy. And I try to go through every single day, especially, you know, these difficult times we're in lockdown, a lot of uncertainty, who knows how the world is going to unfold, how, how our lives are going to unfold. Maybe we lose somebody that we care about to the virus. And what she says is, you know, like try and get to the end of every day having done exercise because that really has a huge impact on your happiness. Try and get to the end of every day having savored something. So what I realized, Dante, is that when I take photographs, I'm an amateur photographer, they're all lousy, but what I'm doing is I'm savoring. I'm taking a photograph as a memory to remember what it was that was nice and beautiful. Try to find a way to have a real connection to somebody uh, in one way or another. Uh, And I think that, um, you know, if I kind of started waking up to this over the last year or two, that, you know, who knows, in all genuine seriousness, I don't know if I will have a great track record at the end of my life. Uh, but I can know that I was a great father, or well, that I was a great husband. And I would really like to get to the end of my life with a lot of people who care that I'm around. And I think that you get to do that by being genuinely helpful to people, finding ways to be a genuinely positive presence in their lives. And I think that that's probably a very significant a good way to gain significance. How do I do? I don't know.
0: Superb man. I think uh, on that note, I don't have more questions here and we can let you go to sleep now.
1: Uh, One hour, so thank it's you. amazing. Wait, wait, wait. I need yeah, to yeah, say yeah. something about Dante. So everyone, Keep going. Uh, I would tell you that Dante is the most extraordinary Renaissance man that I know. Uh, Dante is numerate. Dante thinks analytically, but he also has a human side. He's an extraordinary friend. He's also, um, uh, he also enjoys sport. And uh, so, you know, Dante, you really have a broad range of things and I get to see Dante relatively regularly. There are so many things that the group of us who see Dante envy in Dante. You have the most extraordinary family and it's beautiful to see you gaining significance by sharing a resource who's a friend of yours, in this case me, uh, with some of your friends and some of your network. And that's really lovely. And it's a, it's a great thing that you're doing. And um, uh, please, everyone, be a friend to me by appreciating Dante. He's a force for good in the world. He's certainly a force for good in Peru. I'm
0: blushing here. I'm blushing here, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> gracias. Muchas gracias. Yeah, you no, no. Oh, yeah. Una, una cosa más. En, ¿En inglés. En, en español. So, en español. Entonces, el último Berkshire Hathaway, reunión de Berkshire Hathaway en Omaha, yo me decidió por la primera vez de correr el 5K, 5 kilómetros. Y Dante se decidió de hacerlo también. Y me dijo al empezar que va a quedar conmigo hasta el final. Pero... <risa> Desde el primero kilómetro, yo fue, para mí cinco kilómetros es 45 minutos más o menos. Para Dante es 15, posiblemente 20 minutos. Entonces, de, después del primer kilómetro, Dante me dijo, Oye, Guy, estoy aburrido con esta <risa> velocidad. Te veo al final. Y eso fue. Pero, ok. Ok, mi amigo. mucho mejor que yo.
0: Muchas gracias, un fuerte abrazo. Muchas gracias,
1: gracias. un buen fin del día. Hasta luego a todos. Sí, chao.
0: Chao con todos, gracias.
2: Ok, chao.